Well, as we get back to Exodus this morning, we're starting a brand new series through the book. I've loved to do this. Ever since we were back in the book of Acts, I've loved to try and broaden my, my, my gaze a little further instead of just one chapter, but into several chapters and try and see, is there a theme? Is there a thread within several different chapters that, that maybe God wants to use and have some repetition so this thing can be pressed into our hearts? Like awe going through the 10 signs and wonders in Egypt, we have another series here. We have the next five chapters we have God really trying to communicate something very important to us. And it's all encapsulated in answering the question, who is God? That's what we're going to see in the next five chapters. Through six specific events and one song, we're going to learn who God is. And isn't that beautiful? I mean, that's the question we all really, really, really want to know. And even for some of us who think we have a pretty good idea, we already know what that answer is, who God is. Listen, there is even more for us to know and to glean about a God who is infinite, right? So there's, there's so much for us to be able to grasp. And we're going to look at this in the text and say, God, show us who you are. And that's going to be there. And then we're going to want to make sure we connect it to Jesus. Because there's, when you talk about who is God, you have to see that Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. Jesus is the one who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So, so there's a connection point in all, in all of these. These next seven weeks or so, we're going to be talking about this question in this series, Who is God? And it's so good. But maybe you're wondering, well, why that? Where'd you come up with that question? Where are you pulling that from? And I just want you to know that is where we're at in the book of Exodus. That is what God wants to tell his people next. And this to me is so beautiful. It's so important to me that you know this about God, that after delivering his people from bondage in Egypt, He's not going to rush them as fast as he possibly can to Mount Sinai where he's going to give them the law and tell them what to do. It is so important to me that you know that God isn't so quickly to tell you now that you know me, do all these things. It's so important to me that you know that God is relational, that God wants to reveal to his people who he is before he's going to tell them what they are to do. It beats my heart to let you know that, that before doing comes knowing, before going comes sitting with the Lord. God wants to be obeyed. He absolutely does. But God wants to be obeyed because we know and love him, not because it's supposed to be blind or rote or repetitive or religious or empty. That is not what God wants. He's relational. And so he's going to reveal himself to his people. Sinai is going to come. God is going to give them the law. But that's not what comes next. We have five chapters full of, again, six specific events and one song that are all tailored to God revealing himself, answering that question for his people. This is who I am. I want you to know me. I want you to understand me as much as you can in your finite ability. That's what we're going to be talking about. But it's all because God desires to have relationship with us. I want you to know Jesus followed the same exact pattern in his earthly ministry. 
right? What we're seeing in the book of Exodus, it is a shadow of what we see in Jesus in the New Testament. When Jesus steps on and begins his earthly ministry, remember he he invites 12 men, he calls 12 men to come and follow him to be his disciples. And upon selecting them, Jesus doesn't say, all right, now that I have you all here, now here's what I want you to do, right? That's not why he called them. It wasn't first so they could do something. He calls them to first be with him so they could see him and learn of him and watch him and walk with him and learn him, fall in love with him. And then comes the great commission where they're to go and make disciples. So listen, that's the pattern. Don't think of the book of Exodus as this book of, of the law that God saves his people to then put them back under the law and so they can do all these things. It's a love relationship. It is God winning his people's freedom, showing his people who he really is, and then out of love, giving them his commands, his laws, so that they can keep that right relationship with him. That's what we're seeing. It's so important that we know that, but this same pattern is going to be played out here in the book of Exodus. So with that in mind, with that question in mind, who is God, and us looking to the text for that answer, let's pick this back up as we start part one in this brand new series. And we're actually going to pick up in chapter 13, verse 21, and build a little bit of momentum. But chapter 13, verse 21 says this, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Chapter 14, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pi-Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon, you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say that the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them, And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So picking up this where we left off last week, the children of Israel are leaving Egypt. God has delivered them from Pharaoh's grip and he's leading them. I want to make that very, 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 very clear. God is leading them, right? Moses isn't leading them. God is leading them. And we see that at the end of chapter 13 very clearly. It says the Lord is leading them by a pillar of cloud by day, by a pillar of fire by night. And God is not going to take away his presence from leading them throughout this entire process. Right? So God is leading them. God is there. And I want you just to point this out. This will make more sense later. We'll we'll connect this a little bit later. But verse verse 21, it says, And the Lord... Now that is the proper name of God, the Y-H-V-H, Yahweh. That is the name God gave to Moses when Moses says, who do you, who do you want me to tell them sent me? And the Lord says, I am Yahweh, the great I am, capital L-O-R-D. This is the proper name of God. He's, he's in this cloud. His presence is in this cloud. Again, hold on to that. We'll talk more about it later, but God is leading them. 
And I want that point to be absolutely crystal clear because what we're going to see happen next occurs because God has led them to the very place that God wants to lead them, right? They're all following the cloud and they find themselves right where they are. Now I want you to see again, verse two, following the Lord, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp right here in this exact spot. They're going to camp before a place called Pi Haharoth, and it literally means the place where the grass grows. Think about that place that's near the edge of the water, near the edge of the sea. It's got, it's got the green grass there because it gets plenty of water and precipitation to be able to sustain nice fluffy grass. And he says, I want you to camp right here. I want you, I want you to know that's exactly what I look for. Right, the, the once or, or maybe if my kids twist my arm, the twice a year when I camp in a tent, you know what I'm looking for? The fluffiest, lightest, memory foamiest type of grass I can find for comfort, right? And that's what God says. Here is that place for you. I want you to camp here. Notice right by the sea. So, so far this makes perfect sense to me. But look at the other two cities that we're told about here that make up their other surroundings. The other cities we have here, one is named Migdal, and the other name is Baal Zephon. And I want you to know these are real cities in this day. If we had an ancient map of of Egypt, we would see these two cities are on it. Real places, real geographic places where these two cities once were as the nation of Israel is departing Egypt. But Migdal, it means tower, And it's where we get the idea that this is a fortified city on the Egyptian border. It has a high tower. It's going to be from this tower that Pharaoh is going to hear some news about the whereabouts of the nation of Israel, where they're at, how it looks like they're bewildered, how it looks like they're closed in by the wilderness, and God is going to use that to stir Pharaoh's heart. But just think that, Migdal, a fortified city with a tall tower. And then on the other side is Baal Zephon, which literally means the Lord of the North. So tying all this together, now God is leading them by a cloud during the day, by a pillar of fire by the night. He tells them, turn and camp right here. Here's a nice, grassy, comfortable spot for you. But on the opposite is the sea. On the other end is a fortified city with a tall tower named Migdal. On the the other side, you've got desert and wilderness and another city where it reminds them of Pharaoh, the Lord of the North, right? The self-appointed so-called Lord of the North. But that is right where God has led them. You're between a fortified city and an impassable sea. Remember, two plus million people, men, women, children, herds, livestock, they're all there. What I'm pointing out is if you looked at this from a military strategy, you have just camped in an incredibly vulnerable place. You're cut off on every single end. You have no way of escape. Why would you camp there, right? Only if the Lord told you to. So that's where they are. They're trusting the Lord and they've camped right in this particular place. But that's the message that is going to get back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to hear that it looks like they're closed in, it looks like they're lost and confused. But I want to ask you, is that what is really going on here? Is that what's happened? No. But let's be honest with ourselves. Have we ever felt like that? Would it have been unreasonable for some of the children of Israel this time to think, man, why are we camping here? 
Why is this the place? It seems like we're closed in. Have you ever felt like you're following the Lord? You're being obedient. You're letting the word of God light your path, be the lamp unto your feet, be what you're fixing your eyes on. And yet it feels like you've come to a dead end. It feels like there's an impassable sea and a fortified city and and all these different so-called lords all around you. And you're thinking, this seems like a dead end. We want to ask the question, what do we do when we find ourselves in those situations? Because we do. How quickly do we come up with our own plan? How quickly do we say, God must have been wrong, or I must have misheard the Lord and led myself in the situation. This couldn't be right. God doesn't lead me to dead ends. God doesn't lead me to vulnerable situations, right? He does, case in point, Exodus chapter 14. But do we ever come up with our own plan? Do we ever try to get a little antsy? That's one of the reasons why I don't like camping is because ants can literally get into your pants and I'm antsy enough already. I don't need that. But with all seriousness, this is where God has led them. And as tempting as it is when we find ourselves in situations like that, we need to come back and see very clearly what God told them to do. What are God's instructions to be camped right out here in this place? It's to do just that. It's to camp. It's to temporarily dwell there. A camp is not forever, right? Thank the Lord, camping is not forever. But a camp, this is a temporary place. But that's what he's told them. I want you to camp here, which means don't make a new plan. Don't pick a new spot. I led you here. I told you to camp here. So what I want you to do is wait here for me. Wait here and be still. That is all the children of Israel know at this point. God led us here. God told us to camp here. And listen, that is all they need to know. Sometimes that is all we get. God says, I want you to camp out here. That's what I want you to do. And we need to be faithful right then and there. I don't know if you've learned this or not, Christians, but unlike taking that first trip as a married couple to Washington, D.C., God does not make an itinerary for every single moment of our lives. At least he doesn't tell us the itinerary. He may have it, but he doesn't tell us that itinerary. We walk one step at a time, We walk by faith, and that's what he tells us. Here's your next step. Here's your next step. Here's your next step. And we need to trust him. We need to know the fullness of his being. He is faithful. He is righteous. He is just. He's already shown his love for us. Even the people here, he's delivered them out of Egypt. They need to trust him. They need to keep their eyes fixed upon him. Remember, all they need to do is lift their eyes, and there's a cloud showing God's presence, which we just read he will not take from them. So you say, well, we're camping here, but psh, there's the Lord. He's, li- he's lit up as a pillar of fire by night. He's a pillar of cloud by day. He's there, which means if he's not moving, we're not moving. He wants us to camp. He's with us here. To camp is what we're going to do. Now, on the flip side of things, as we look at this, sometimes we can kind of look at this and, and take this as none of that can't be right. Maybe I need to start moving and God will follow me. Is that how it's supposed to work? Are we supposed to say, God, follow me? Or is it the other way around? God says, no, 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 you follow me, right? We don't get to lead the Lord. He is Lord, right? He is Lord. We're not. He's the good shepherd. We're the sheep. So again, just sometimes it means just camp out. And that's what ministering to my heart a lot as here we are in this shelter in place, kind of a fancy way to say camp out where you are. And that's what we've been doing. But I want you to understand this. At the end of verse four, it says, and they did so. 
I want you to think, do you know how many self-induced problems we would avoid in our own lives if when God tells us to camp, even in a difficult place, or to hang tight, even in a difficult place, if we just did what God asked us to do, do you know how many problems we would avoid? They just did so. They obeyed. They waited upon the Lord and they camped. Now here's the other part that I want us to catch. While they wait on the Lord, what is God doing? What the people don't know, what we don't know sometimes, let's be honest, what we don't know most times is what God is setting up behind the scenes while we wait. I want you to know God is not like some dentist office that is going to make you wait while they sit in the back finishing their catered lunch. I'm not saying dentists do that if that offends you. I wasn't meaning that. I mean, God is not just making you aimlessly wait while he twiddles his thumbs or finishes some, some book he's reading. While we're waiting, God is setting something up behind the scenes. God is working something out. He has put the nation of Israel in this exact spot. So the tower at Migdal is going to see what is happening and report that news back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to hear they're bewildered. His heart's going to be stirred. And God is going to use that to harden Pharaoh's heart to pursue that nation of Israel yet again so God can finally and forever get the glory over Pharaoh by defeating him and all the Egyptians in this incredible deliverance for his people. What God is doing is he's put them here. He's called them out of Egypt. He's delivered them out of Egypt. But he's about to save them from the Egyptians. It was one thing to get them out. It's another thing to show that he is victorious over those who once held them captive. Did you catch that? It's one thing to set you free. It's another thing to show you, I am able to defeat those who held you captive. That is what God is going to show them here. So even though we don't always know what God is setting up, listen, God always knows what he's setting up. Always, always, always. So when he says camp, we camp, even if you have to pull the pillow topper off of your bed and put it in the tent outside so it's a bit more comfy, just just camp. Trust me on that. Verse five says, Now it was told that the king of Egypt, that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we've let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and he took his people with him. Also, he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, And he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them all, the horses, chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea of Pi-Haharoth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the eyes of the children of Israel lifted, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt? Saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians." For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. 
So check out what happens here. Pharaoh takes the bait. He gets news that here's where the children of Israel are at and all that anger and that bitterness and that resistance to God and that refusal to humble himself before God, it all comes boiling back to the surface. And he gets this thought, why did we ever let them go? Now is our chance to bring them back into bondage all over again. And God is going to use that thought and he's going to use that hard heart and he's going to harden it even more to fulfill his purposes and get the glory over Pharaoh, bringing judgment finally and forever over Pharaoh and all of his army. But I want you to notice that Pharaoh personally makes his chariot ready. He is coming too. And he orders 600 choice chariots and then all the other chariots of Egypt to mount up. We're going after the children of Israel. This is a picture of all the military might Egypt can muster, right? Pharaoh, his chariot, all of the chariots, they're coming after Israel. And I want us to slow down here for a minute and I want us to see the full picture of what is happening here. When we look at this, I want us to understand what is at stake. They are coming back to try and repossess the nation of Israel that once served for 430 years as slaves to the Egyptians. So what is at stake here? The freedom for Israel. What is also at stake here? Who gets rightful ownership over them, right? It's an ownership situation. It's a freedom situation, And remember how I told you, not only is God wanting to show them, I delivered you out of something, I'm wanting to show you I'm able to deliver you over something or through something. I'm able to defeat the very people that were holding you captive. I'm greater than them. And as we think of a a fuller picture here, I want us to kind of peel a few layers back and go a little bit below the surface. We've talked previously about how Egypt is a picture of the world. Throughout the Bible, Egypt is a picture of our world. Friendship with the world is enmity against God. And Egypt and all of the idolatry and all of the facade that it is, it's a picture of the world. God calls us out of Egypt into a relationship with him, into a place where there's going to be a heavenly home forever, not a temporary home in Egypt. I want you to know Pharaoh is also a picture, a type of Satan in the Bible. He's a picture of what Satan wants to do, right? Who's the prince of the power of the the air? It's Satan. Who's the ruler of this age? It's Satan. So if we're talking Egypt and we're talking Pharaoh, we're talking the world and Satan. We're seeing that picture. And what we're seeing here is we're seeing Pharaoh who regrets letting the people go. And I mean, come on, let's be honest. Really forgetting letting the people go? Pharaoh, you got whooped, right? You were 0 for 10. You did nothing, right? God totally defeated you, brought you to your knees. But he's like, "Hmm, I think I let the people go because he's a liar and even lies to himself. But that's what he thinks. I shouldn't let the people go. But what he clearly wants to do is regain them back, repossess them, take them back to Egypt, and get them to serve his purposes all over again. Make no mistake, that's exactly what Pharaoh wants to do, and make no mistake, that's exactly what Satan wants to do with each of us as Christians. He wants to chase us down, overwhelm us, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, and then repossess us for his purposes as slaves to sin, as slaves to his purpose all over again. So that's what's happening. You know, on the other side, we have the Lord God Almighty, the one who has redeemed Israel. He's paid the ransom price. He's 
He's shown the blood of the lamb is the price that was needed to rescue and redeem them out of Egypt. And they have, right? He's with them. He's leading them. They're camping with him right where God told them to camp. And God is already acknowledging they don't belong to Pharaoh anymore. I bought them. They are mine, right? But that's what's happening. Pharaoh thinks I'm going to come at them with all that I have. I'm going to try and win them back. And we're going to see what God is going to do. But that's the situation, Right? It's so much more than just parting a Red Sea. It is about who is the rightful owner of the nation of Israel. Is God able to keep who he redeems? That's what's happening here. So Israel in this moment, they seem defenseless. They seem like they don't have any weapons. They, they don't have any weapons, right? They carried away food. They carried away, away whatever possessions they could, but it wasn't weapons. They don't know war. And we've already talked about they don't even have a way of escape. So they're sitting ducks, as they say, as the most powerful army in the world at this time is barreling down upon them. But Christians, this should sound pretty familiar to us. This is our story as well. We can, we can make application and see the parallels here. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Satan is called a strong man who has taken people captive into his house. Now Jesus comes as the stronger man to plunder the strong man's house after he binds him, meaning he's come to set the captives free. He's come to lead us into freedom. That's what Jesus has done. And he has done that just like we're seeing here, just like we see in the Exodus with Pharaoh and the Hebrews, just like what we see God has done for them. So we come to Jesus. We're redeemed. Lives are changed. Chains are broken. We're no longer slaves. But we do need to know this. Just like Pharaoh is doing here, Satan will come and make a play to repossess our hearts. He will come to tempt us. Remember when Jesus is on the the Mount of Temptation and he throws those three different attempts and Jesus uses the word of God to refute all of them, but then it says Satan leaves him for an opportune time. That's what he does for us. You know what the most opportune time is? When we're stuck between a sea and a fortified city, when we have nowhere else to go, we have no way of escape. Right? This is the opportune time, and Satan is going to make a play, trying to find a foothold in our lives, trying to create a foothold, trying to seduce us to sin, trying to get us to depart, abiding in the Lord, and staying near his presence. That's what he does. And so by summoning all the powers at his disposal, the armies of Egypt, that's exactly what he's wanting to get the children of Israel to do. Right? What does he want? Ultimately, he wants them back to serve as slaves to him. So what I want you to see is I want you to see the four things he does to almost accomplish his goal. Pharaoh's going to come, and as a picture of Satan, he's going to do four things. And Christians, Satan uses these same four things to try and get back to our hearts, gaining possession over us once more to serve him. So tune in for this. Four things here. What does Pharaoh do? What does Pharaoh's army do to the children of Israel? Number one, we see in verse 10 that he causes fear. Right? He causes fear. That's what he does. That's one of his tactics. Verse 10 says they are very afraid. They're not just a little bit afraid. They're very afraid. When you give over to fear, when you allow fear to take over your heart, you know what doesn't happen in the presence of fear? Decisions of faith. 
Fear starts to lead us into a self-preservation mode where we stop thinking logically, we stop thinking rationally, we stop thinking faithfully. Remember in the book of Revelation, he says, they overcame. Why? They didn't love their lives to the death, but they clang to the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives to the death. There's this aspect of fear that starts getting us thinking of self-preservation, start getting us to think, I'll do whatever I can to survive. Really? Whatever? Will you deny the Lord your God? Will you forsake who he's called you to be? Really, whatever to survive? Because I've got a limit on what I will do to survive. I will not forsake the Lord my God. I will not give up the word of of his testimony in my life. I'm not going to love my life to the death. But Satan's going to come sometimes with fear to try and get us to that place where we will no longer walk by faith, but walk by sight and just continue to do the math really easily. There's no way we can stand against this great army. I don't even have any weapons. Right, that's what he does. He causes fear. Once fear comes, number two, the second thing he does is in fear, he causes us to pray doubtless prayers. That's what they do. In verse 10, it says, they cried out to the Lord. But if you're very afraid and you've overcome yourself to fear, when you pray doubtless prayers, if it's motivated by fear, it's not motivated by faith. James tells us that if you pray that way, you should expect nothing from the Lord because you're double-minded. You're already doubting what you're asking for. And Hebrews chapter 11 says, if we're going to come to the Lord, we need to come to him in faith, believing that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So fear comes, he causes fear, and then he causes us to pray doubtless prayers, to doubt the power of prayer, to doubt the sufficiency and God's willingness to answer our prayers. Third thing he does is he causes division. He causes division. He wants us to turn against each other. Listen, Satan loves division. He thrives off of division. He divides and then he scatters and then he conquers and then he repossesses. That's exactly what he wants to do. When you think of some of the things we know about Satan, he is called the accuser of the brethren. He goes before the throne of God night and day accusing the brethren. So you know what that means? If he's the prince of the power of the air and he's the ruler of this age, you know what we can deduce from the accuser of the brethren? There's going to be accusations amongst the brethren. But where do they come from? They come from Satan who wants to cause division. Listen, you Christian, if you are here right now and you're on the end of the accusation where you know somebody's accusing you of something falsely, you have to see where it's coming from. Christian, if you're listening here and you're on the other end and you're accusing somebody falsely where you don't have all the information, listen, stop. Both of you, stop. Don't be used as a tool for the enemy to cause division. That is not of God. Stop and recognize it for what it is. We are children of the light. We are not children of darkness. We want to fix our eyes upon Jesus and not let the enemy do what he wants to do, what he's trying to do right here in Exodus. So don't apply to those things. Don't give yourself over to those things. Understand that all accusations stop right at the cross where Jesus forgave all of our sin. They stop right at the cross where Jesus became sin for us. Sometimes people say, well, I, pff, I, can't, I can't absorb that wrong. That person was wrong. And listen, they might be. And God will deal with them. But listen, Jesus absorbed every single one of my wrongs. 
in Christ, I think I can absorb a few of some other people's wrongs. It can stop if we take it to the cross, if we emulate Jesus and say, it has to stop here at the cross. You have forgiven me, Jesus. Forgive that person. Forgive me of my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. Don't turn it into some accusation thinking that you're going to accomplish something good. You're going to be used of God to cause division. Stop. Don't allow that. Don't take that bait. That's what the people do, though. They start accusing Moses. Look at, they say, Moses, were there not enough graves for us in Egypt? Don't you think that's hilarious? You're thinking the one thing Egypt is known most for is the pyramids, right? Which were just elaborate graves. They had plenty of grave space in Egypt. That's a ridiculous accusation. But they say, what were you trying to, what were you trying to accomplish, Moses? Did you want us just to, to be led out to the desert to die? Is that why you led us? You notice that their language is saying, why did you lead us, Moses? Remember what we started? The, the cloud of God's presence leading them is right there. God is leading them not Moses. And Moses has had no power to work the supernatural works of God as displayed through the 10 signs and wonders. It was never Moses. He's an instrument, an under shepherd, a servant to the almighty God. But they're wanting to blame him and to accuse him. Do you want us to die in the wilderness? Is that your plan? They say, why didn't you just leave it alone? That's what we asked you to do right, in fear, in doubt, and now in division, they even go so far as to say, it would be better for us to still be serving in Egypt than to just die here in the wilderness. It would have been better if we had never seen any signs, any wonders, if we had never learned the Lord God's name than coming out here and experiencing what we experience if we're just going to die in the desert. That is crazy to me that those words just come out of their mouths, but that's exactly what Satan wants to do. That's exactly what Pharaoh wants them to do. What, what's number four? What does Satan want? He wants us to go backwards. He actually wants to deceive us into thinking. You know what? It was actually better before I started following Jesus. It was better while I was still in bondage. It was better while I was living as a slave to my own sin. That is ridiculous. Seriously, any thought of going backwards is not from the Lord God. It is from the enemy of our souls and it plays right into the plan of Pharaoh. He wants us to desire to go back to where God has just delivered us from. Just think about that logically. If God has delivered us from something, he does not want us to ever go back to it. Right? He delivered it, delivered us from it. Right, but that's where they that's where they're at. That's what they're saying. This is what is happening in this camp of Israel as Pharaoh is pursuing them, as as he's as Satan is, is being used here by is, is Satan is using Pharaoh to deceive them, to buy into these lies, and the people are buying it. They're playing into all these things. And it's because fear is contagious. Remember, the whole pattern just starts with fear. They were very afraid. Fear is contagious. One person expressing fear, one person expressing a lack of faith, and it starts to spread amongst the entire nation of two plus million people. And now they're actually ready to say, we surrender, we'll go back. You know what? It was actually better. It's a better alternative than dying in the wilderness. And I want you to know, as I said, fear is contagious. But do you want to know what else is contagious? Faith is contagious. One person standing up saying, no, 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 no. 
Don't you remember who God is? Don't you remember what God has done to these same people, this same nation? Don't you think God is is going to show us his power and ability over this coming army? Don't you remember what he did? All the plagues, all that power, and that one person, that is Moses. Moses is going to stand up and he's going to share his faith in the midst of this crumbling situation all around him. Moses, he maybe is only one person out of two plus million people, but Moses is not alone. There's the cloud of God's very presence as Moses has fixed his eyes there. And look at what Moses has to say next. Verse 13 says, and Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Those verses right there, they are what we call epic Bible verses. I've almost worn through the page highlighting those every single time I read them because I love them. And these are some of those verses that just solidify Moses as a hero of mine in the Bible. But listen, never let us be afraid to stand up and speak faith into a situation even if every other person around us is doubting and being paralyzed by fear. Moses speaks faith, the courage, the strength to speak faith. Why? Because Moses knows who God is. Moses knows what God is capable of. So he stands up in this crowd. He's clearly the minority. I don't even know how his, his voice booms so loud to pass this on. But he says, I don't know how. God has not told me the specifics here. I don't know how this is going to happen, but I know this. I know who God is. And God is our salvation. God has not led us this far to let us die in the wilderness now. I think Moses is taking all the way back to knowing, I don't know how it's all going to happen, but I know God promised me that after he delivers his people out of Egypt, we're going to get to Mount Sinai where we're going to worship him. I don't know how we're going to get there, but we're not there yet, which means we're not dying in the wilderness. And it is Moses standing in faith upon the word of God saying, today is not our end. Today is a day of salvation. You just need to sit and stand and see what God is going to do today. And I love that because he doesn't have all the answers. He just knows what God is capable of. He knows who God is. So he says to the people, do not be afraid. Do not run away. Stand still and see. He's even saying, in essence, saying, even if God showed you what he's going to do today, you wouldn't have believed it if he told you. But he kind of gives that tidbit enough to say, these Egyptians that you see, the horses, the chariots, the armor, the the horde and multitude, he says, you're not going to see them again alive one more time. No, not forevermore. I'm going to do a great victory. God is going to do a great victory with boldness. Just stand and see. But, But friends, Christians, church, I want you to take note here. Do not miss how incredible this is. We've set this up, this, this battle over the battle for the ownership, the battle for the freedom. 
we've talked about God is capable of calling us out of Egypt, right? He's done that with the people, but now he's going to show them that he's also capable of defeating those who once held them captive. But I want you to understand and make note of this. Who does the fighting to show them that they're free? Who, who's the one that proves he's stronger than the ones who hold them captive? Never one time do we see God look at the people and say, all right, pick up a rock, pick up a stick, find a weapon, do whatever you can do. I'm going to empower you like Samson or like Gideon and you're going to wipe them out. Not here. In this instance, God is saying, I am going to fight for you. Why? Because who is God? This first session that we want to make sure, who is God? What's the one thing he wants people to know? I am your salvation. I am your deliverer. I am the one who's going to fight for you. All you need to do is sit and see. You need to watch and be a spectator. We need to understand that. That's the bigger picture of what Jesus has done for us. It is by God's grace that we have been saved, not of works, lest none of us should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. We are not the soldiers who won our own freedom. We couldn't. In the same capacity is if God doesn't intervene here, every single one of those, those Israelites, one or two things is gonna happen. They're all gonna die or they're gonna go back to slavery as if they were never delivered before. But that is not what happens. God fights for them. God wins their freedom by defeating all those who contended against them, all those who held them captive. And Jesus does the same exact thing. I put several verses in your study guide to show us how Jesus triumphs over those, those spiritual forces, Satan and his grip upon us, how he stomps on his head and he breaks his chains and he, blunder, he plunders his house. Jesus is victorious forever. Jesus, Yeshua, I am salvation. God is our salvation. Jesus is our salvation. He fights for us. He did the work that we couldn't do. We see that perfectly pictured here in this instance. Again, it's so much more than just the Red Sea, although we're almost there and the Red Sea is incredible. But for us, when we think about how we stand in these opportune times where Satan is wanting to come at us, how do we stand? We need to remember who is our rock. We need to remember upon whose strength do I stand. Think about how many times Paul tells us to stand firm in the faith, to stand firm in the power of his might, to armor up, to remember the positional relationship we have in Christ, what he's won for us. All those things pertain and apply to what we're talking about here. But that's what Moses says in in not so many words, but in faith and boldness, God is our salvation. You sit, you stand, you watch, you see as God reveals to you who he is. He is our salvation. Verse 15 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all of his army and chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of God 
who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So we talked earlier how, how Satan tries to derail us. Those four things as he's coming at us, he tries to derail us. Remember, he causes fear, he causes doubtless prayers, he causes division, and then he causes the desire for us to want to go backwards. But I want you to see how God counteracts each and every one of those four attempts from the enemy. He, he, he first says faith. Not fear, but faith. What has the power to overcome this world? Jesus says, our faith in him. Why? Because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the Egypt. I've overcome the Pharaoh. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So faith. So he says, do not fear, have faith. And then he says, stand still and see. Know, know that the Lord is God. Verse, the third one is know your peace. Know that God is your peace. Remain in that place because you know he's peace. The peace that surpasses all understanding is found in him. And then in verse 15, I love this. He says, go forward. Go forward. Right? I circled that too and I highlighted that because that's the, that's the position God wants us to go. Move forward. Don't go backwards. Move forward. And I think about that. Now he's asking everybody to walk by faith because to go forward means to go towards the sea. I'm looking at a picture here, Tahoe, and there's, there's the, the water. I love it because they're, they're going to the water. What's going to happen? God said, go forward. We're going to go forward. But make no mistake when he says, Moses, you're going to stretch out your hand. Make no mistake. March, March told us when, when he taught a few weeks ago, God does not need Moses to do this, right? This is one of those things where God is showing himself strong on behalf of one whose heart is loyal to him. Moses has been faithful. Moses is God's instrument. And God is doing this to show himself strong on Moses' behalf. But God is doing this. God is the power behind this every single time. Only God has the power to divide these waters to part this Red Sea. It's a miracle that only the great I am, the Lord of heaven and earth, God Almighty alone can do. But he's going to do that. He's going to part the waters to make a dry path for the nation of Israel to all pass through. Now, why? Because again, he is the God of salvation. Now, in the meantime, why God is conjuring up this east wind to separate these waters of the Red Sea, I want you to see the last thing we're told here. In verse 18, it says that he becomes a hedge of protection for his people. That he's going to overwhelm that tower of Migdal, that stronghold. He's able to cast down strongholds. But it says in verse 18 that in this cloud, it was the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel. I pointed out at the end of chapter 3 that the presence in the cloud was called the L-O-R-D, the very proper name of God. But now here it's called the angel of God. So what's going on here? What's different? Well, we still have the Lord God, but we have the second person of the Trinity. We have Jesus here in this angel of the Lord. This is a Christophany. This is a picture of Jesus pre-incarnate. Before he clothes himself in humanity, Remember, Jesus is the all-existing one as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. So here's Jesus, a picture of the angel of God, a pre-incarnate representation or appearance of Jesus here in the text. 
But I just, I love this because remember what's going on. There's a fight that's going to take place. There's a battle that is raging. Egypt's coming for war. It's going to be either death or taking people captive. And so when a fight needs to take place, I think of Jesus and the Christophany that we see in the book of Joshua, the, 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 the commander of the army of the Lord who is standing there with sword drawn. I see God looking down and saying, we need to protect these people. We need to head to protection against them. We need to keep them separate. And Jesus says, somebody pass me my sword. And he goes out there with sword drawn and keeps the Egyptians and the Israels apart all night while God sets up his great deliverance. I love that. That is Jesus who still fights for us. That is Jesus who always lives to make intercession for us. That is Jesus. The greater is he in me than he that is in this world. Keeping all those enemies at bay. That's what Jesus is able to do. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our safety. Jesus is our Lord and our comfort and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Verse 21 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the sea, into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and he troubled the army of the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty." And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth. While the Egyptians were fleeing into it, so the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is just a flat out absolute awesome miracle. This is what God alone is able to do. Notice he brings salvation to his people and judgment upon their adversaries through the very same event. A picture of what the cross also accomplishes for us. A picture of salvation and judgment upon the very thing that causes condemnation, sin itself. When Jesus became sin for us, even though he who knew no sin, he became sin for us so that when he died that death, we can be considered called the righteousness of God. That same thing happens, salvation and judgment in the same event. But there are a couple questions we, we want to answer here. Like how are two million people, men, women, children, herds, and livestock, how are they able to pass through these divided waters faster than the Egyptians on horses and chariots? And we see a few different reasons why. The answer is found, once again, in the text. Verse 24 says, The Lord looked down and he troubles the Egyptians. 
They're going to see the Lord God of Israel actually fights for them and against us. And yes, he does. So the Lord is fighting against them. But verse 25, it says the wheels start coming off for the Egyptians. That's never a good thing, right? When the wheels start coming off, we use that as a phrase like things have gone awry. The train has come off the tracks. The wheels are off. Okay, the wheels don't literally come off. It literally means they're binding up. Perhaps they're sinking in the soft, dry ground and they're not able to pass through the sea. Whatever, the Lord's fighting for them. The Lord's fighting against the Egyptians here, but they realize they're in trouble and they're trying to flee. But verse 27 says, once the Hebrews are all safe on the other side, the Egyptians trying to drag their chariots out of those depths of waters. That's where God tells Moses, take your, take your staff back. And when you stretch it out, the morning's going to come and I'm going to bring those waves back upon all the Egyptians, Pharaoh included, and I'm going to cover them all. They're all going to be drowned in the Red Sea. It's going to be finished. It's going to be a deliverance that you're all going to remember. And a great testimony is going to be preached for all generations and we see that that exact thing has happened but no one remains victory belongs to the lord now to get into some specifics here this is a miracle however you want to slice it this is a miracle you've maybe heard it said well it, it wasn't it wasn't the depths of water it was the reed sea and not the red sea we don't have time to get into all those things i'd love to talk to you about it we don't have time to get into them here but i came across a story that i just thought was was wonderful when you think about this it's a miracle either way you slice it well, there was a guest teacher showing up at a Bible teaching church. And you know, that pastor probably didn't vet this guy too much, but this guest, this guest teacher is sharing. And somehow, nonchalantly, in passing, he mentions the Red Sea crossing. And somebody, some Berean, some faithful brother in the fellowship says, praise God, right? God delivering all the children of Israel through all those deep waters. But this guest teacher, you know, he didn't believe in miracles. So he said, well, it, it actually wasn't a miracle. The, the waters weren't that deep. There was only about six inches, and, and the nation of Israel just kind of picked their way across. The same brother says, well, what a miracle. God drowned all those Egyptians in six inches of water. Praise God. Because no matter how you slice it, it's a miracle. I adhere to the depth of the sea. Because twice it says there were walls on the left and the right. Walls. And I always like to say, which one gives God the most glory? I don't have, if I believe Genesis 1-1, and I do, that God spoke things into existence, I have no problem with a miracle working God. He's able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than I can ever ask or imagine. Listen, if I can imagine it, and we, we can all have some powerful imaginations, God's able to do exceedingly even more than we can imagine. He's God. So I have no problem with this being an absolute miracle that God works out. And you know what? Neither did the children of Israel in the text. Look at what they say in verse 30. They say, so the Lord saved Israel. That day, out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. This trial ends, and these people who all knew there was no other possible way for them to be saved, but yet they see God fights for them. God is their salvation. They leave this trial, they leave this situation more amazed and more certain than they ever were before. And they have their first answer to the question, who is God? They can look back at the Red Sea and say, God is salvation. Listen, God is salvation. 
and he has a name and his name is Jesus, Yeshua. I am salvation. I am the way for you when there is no way. I'm the only way. Jesus is salvation. The same shadow pulls all the way through the entire Bible. But they say not only has God delivered us out of Egypt, delivering us out of the place of bondage, but he's also delivered us from our very captors, from the very people who wanted to repossess us and bring us back into slavery. That Christian is a nugget that we all need to apply to our lives. That is who Jesus is. He calls us out. He keeps us out. He overcomes all those that contends against us. That's salvation. As we wrap this up, there's five more things quickly, quickly, quickly that I want to touch on just for some application to our own lives. Number one is walking with God is not without trial. Please understand that. Walking with God is not without trial. Sometimes we are going to find ourselves between a rock and a hard place. And Christians always choose the rock. Always choose Jesus. Always choose to trust him, to camp out upon him, to plant your life in him. Because he is able to to stand even when the winds and the waves and the turbulence of an ever-changing world come and go. Jesus stands the same. Number two, camping isn't always fun, but it's necessary sometimes. And it's God's will sometimes. And sometimes it takes a little longer than we think it's going to take. But while we're waiting, God is working. We don't always know what he's setting up, but he always knows what he's setting up. He doesn't waste time. Number three, fear is contagious, but faith is more so. Be someone like Moses that is willing to stand up and share your faith in boldness, even when it feels like you stand alone, even when it feels like everyone around you has their faith faltering. God is able, God is faithful. Not a word of the Lord has ever failed to come to pass. You anchor yourself upon the word of God. You faithfully preach and present and stand upon his word. That is what we want to do. Number four, when the enemy comes, at that opportune time to make a play for you and I. Remember that our hearts are already spoken for. Remember that the blood of the lamb has washed us white as snow. Remember that it was his work of redemption, not mine. I didn't save myself. When anybody wants to bring fear or bring condemnation, sometimes I want to say, Jesus, um, can you pick up the sword and stomp this dude out again? And Jesus says, will you just speak truth in your own heart and keep your eyes fixed upon me? Don't look at the coming army. Keep your eyes fixed upon the cloud of my presence. Be reminded that I have promised to be with you always until the end of the age. Our hearts are spoken for, Christians. And number five, lastly, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. That's not just a, a one-time transaction, although in some, in some sense it is, right? We're, we're saved and positionally brought right before the Lord. But I love it. He continues to save. He delivers as a deliverer. He's a redeemer who redeems. He's a reconciler who reconciles. He's a forgiver who forgives. It's, it's, it's what he does. And he always lives to make intercession for us, as we mentioned. So when you think about it, that's what Jesus does. And so he has saved us from things. But sometimes, I know I've had seasons in my own life, maybe you're like, I did go back to Egypt. So now what's there for me? Jesus saves. 
You can call upon the name of the Lord and say, Father, deliver me from this place again. I need to be rescued again. Break the chains again. He is able and willing to do that. That's called repentance. Change your mind about why you went back there in the first place and ask God to deliver you again. He will. That's what he does. Or you feel like I'm a slave all over again. I need you to defeat the foe in my life again. He can and he will. Submit to God. Resist the enemy, and he flees from you. But submit to God comes first. Jesus saves. Let him be your Savior. Let him be your Lord. Let him be your Rescuer and Redeemer. Be that person who, on the other side of the Red Sea, like Moses, believes God is going to do something supernatural because it's well within the consistency of his character. Let's do that. Let's apply that. Let's walk that out. 